Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Taking the Stand, a Freedom Advocacy Network podcast production or a fan production if you want to be quick about this. My name is, of course, Hadmon Petuidis. I'm the director of FAN uh, and the host of Taking the Stand. Now, I uh, genuinely like listening to that percussive intro uh, for the show, beautifully designed by uh, by our team. Um, and I, I like it because it has this, you know, momentum, this idea that there's a heartbeat to freedom and that it progresses and that it's alive. And part of that being alive is making sure that freedom can respond to challenges. Um, and part of what's important about the Freedom Advocacy Network is that we respond to challenges. And these challenges can come in various forms. But in this week's episode, I will be looking at a few challenges that have come our way from social media, people who have taken issue with the content that we have promoted here on FAN. Now, this is the, I think, eighth or ninth episode, I can't keep track always, uh, episode of a series of episodes on the idea of social justice and justice. Now, social justice and justice are important concepts that we must understand honestly and clearly. Uh, justice is, of course, that principle uh, that allows injustice or unfairness or, you know, uh, some disadvantageous uh, unjust action to be redressed. Justice is inherently actionable. It relies on the ability of people to be restored or protected to their freedom um, as manifested by fundamental human rights uh, with which they are endowed by their creator. Now, social justice is something a bit different, but it is not completely without merit. And we have to be honest about that. Oftentimes, um, social justice advocates uh, identify very real problems, even if they don't go far enough to identify real solutions. So while I think there is a danger in focusing too much on social justice, we shouldn't make the mistake of not focusing on it at all. We've discussed how justice and social justice collide, clash, and sometimes can even collaborate. But today, I want to look at a few very specific uh, challenges, arguments, counter-arguments um, that have been directed at FAN and specifically at taking the stand here um, when we talk about social justice. Now, when we talk about social justice, we must distinguish between the two forms of social justice. One, you can consider the lowercase s, lowercase j, social justice, where it really is about finding justice and redress of injustice um, in the social sphere of life. And I think that's fair. But the problem is capital S, capital J, social justice. Well, that's become something a bit different. It's a bit similar to the idea of saying, of course, black lives matter, but not necessarily meaning that you support the capital B, capital L, capital M, black lives matter movement. You can have the idea of saying Black Lives Matter, and you'll find almost universal endorsement for it. But you can't do the same with just the name by giving it capital B, capital L, capital M, uh, Black Lives Matter, and now you have that same principles, because the one means something different from the other. So small letter S, small letter J, social justice, justice that applies to the social sphere of life, I think that's fair. That is something worth pursuing. 
Capital S, capital J, social justice, however, means something more specific. It has morphed into a set of philosophies and ideology um, that really drives a lot of the identitarian or identity-based politics that we see these days. And this comes mainly from the overarching philosophical idea of critical theory. Now, critical theory um, has a few manifestations. It could be critical feminist theory. It could be critical queer studies. It can be critical fat theory. Um, it could be critical ableist or disablest theory, critical colonial theory. Um, and th it, it comes in many various forms. And then, of course, critical race theory, CRT, that we in South Africa, I think, are exposed to the most because of our history of racial injustice and racial discrimination in the form of apartheid and some of the legislation that have followed in the last 30 or so years, especially based on race and trying to advantage and benefit people not based on any other metric really than their skin color. And that's problematic. So if we look at justice and social justice, we have to understand that we are looking at two abstract concepts that are important, but that we need to understand if we want freedom to have a chance and your freedom is worth fighting for. And the question then is, which of these forms of justice allows you to fight for your freedom? Is it justice or capital S, capital J, social justice? And the contention here at FAN uh, is that non-racialism is key to any South African future. I think it's the, the Martin Luther King Jr. quote really sums it up quite spectacularly in the sense that he dreamt of a country where his of a day where his four little children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And that's essentially the core thrust of non-racialism. And if it was the case that social justice, capital S, capital J, also had that as an ambition, I think that would be fine. But it's becoming clearer and clearer that that is not the case. And we've discussed this. Uh, we've had some discussions, some great discussions uh, with uh, people from the Institute of Race Relations, from Edonti, uh, from uh, uh, fellow colleagues at the Freedom Advocacy Network here at FAN, trying to untangle much of the tangled thinking that goes on these days and trying to make it as simple as possible. And today I want to respond to some of the challenges and some of the criticism that we've received. Now, in a previous conversation I had with Caden Lang, uh, awesome guy who, if you can find anything uh, that he has written, do read it. It's online with the Daily Friend, uh, a sister organization of FAN. Uh, he is one of the main actors at Edonti, Educate, Don't, Educate, Don't, Indoctrinate, where they really try to investigate how race relations are managed in schools in South Africa. And Caden has a very solid background in philosophy. And we had a conversation about what critical race theory is and where it comes from and what is critical race theory's take on whiteness or blackness. You know, these terms thrown around by social justice advocates. And this seemed to spur some criticism from uh, people who follow us on Facebook. And I want to look at a spe specific comment from a guy called uh, Carlos Francisco. 
Now, firstly, I want to thank Carlos for engaging. Um, engaging is really the first step to finding solutions to problems. And, and I want to thank Carlos for being uh, willing and able to do this and, you know, following us on, on Facebook and, you know, checking us up, uh, making sure that we, you know, don't stray uh, from these ideas of freedom, non-racialism, opportunity, you know, the good stuff that all people surely can agree on are better than not having them. But Carlos has a very specific criticism of the discussion that Kate and I had about the anti-whiteness of critical race theory. His comment reads, no one is asking to be anti-white people. Your conclusion here aims to draw to fear and install fear. Seems to me that you suspect people of color will treat white people as badly as white people treated people of color in the past. This is a fear-based projection. You are mirroring others the fear of revenge. Now, I don't think that's valid criticism. And let's, let's investigate why. Let's start with the first sentence. No one is asking to be anti-white people. I think that's just blatantly false. Um, you see this in universities, especially across the world, where the very idea that white male philosophers might be taught in philosophy departments has become a touchpoint. And it has become a touchpoint here in South Africa at the University of Johannesburg, where there have been active steps taken to, quote unquote, decolonize the philosophy curriculum. Now, ironically, um, the the champions of these movements are often followers of Hume or Kant, white male European philosophers. So there's, there's some irony there. But the idea that no one is asking to be anti-white people is, I think, just playing a bit too loosely and too conveniently with the term white. Because while we might grant that critical race theory doesn't target white people, it blatantly and openly targets whiteness. If you read further into the critical race theory uh, text, you find that whiteness, while an abstract unembodied concept, might not be seen as anti-white people, you find out that whiteness is carried intrinsically by white people. It is a bit like saying, you know, no one is asking uh, people, if, if someone comes out and say, you know, blonde people are idiots, you might be saying, or, uh, or no, let's rephrase, blondness is a threat to healthy genes. You might say, well, you know, it's talking about blondness. It's talking about hair color, this abstraction. But the problem is you can't dissociate blondness from blond people, just like you can't dissociate whiteness from white people. And the critical race theorists themselves don't want to do this. They openly uh, make the connection between whiteness and white people. And I think it really is sort of begging special linguistic gymnastics if you want to say, no, it's about whiteness and not about white people. So I think that first bit of criticism or that first claim, no one is asking to be anti-white people, is either dishonest or very naive in the sense that it doesn't look deep enough into what critical race theorists hold whiteness to entail and how it manifests in their view. Then the next question, your conclusion here aims to draw to fear and install fear. And that's just straight up not true. Um, the Freedom Advocacy Network, FAN, we have a, a clear uh, objective of empowering people, of building trust between people, of connecting freedom-loving people. And the idea that we want to 
install fear misses the fact that we often refer to the data and the reality that people across the board from all races, from all skin colors, especially in South Africa, share much more than divides them. They have the same priorities when it comes to education. Everyone wants good schools for their kids. They have the same when it comes to jobs. They have the same attitude when it comes to, you know, corruption, housing, uh, uh, medical care. And even uh, in the newest surveys uh, done by research entities such as the Institute of Race Relations, the abuse of women and children is a high priority across all race groups. So if we are being accused of trying to ferment division or install fear. It really is a very, very dishonest or very cherry-picking interpretation of what we're doing since we heavily rely on the reality that South Africans and people generally have the same priorities in life, have the same desire for freedom and the same desire for quality lives, peaceful lives, happy lives. The idea that we want to install fear misses the fact that we hammer on this opportunity for productive and constructive and beautiful harmony between people of all races. But perhaps we are instilling fear, but not of any particular person, but of an idea, because some ideas are scary. I think the Nazis had scary ideas. I think the apartheid government had scary ideas. I think racists to this day, of course, have scary ideas. And if you're telling someone to be scared of something that is legitimately scary, yes, you might be installing fear, but it's not an unfounded fear. And it all goes to context. Are we installing fear of people? No. Are we installing fear of an idea? Well, possibly. But that's what happens if you get educated or if you try to engage constructively with scary ideas. I'm fearful of sharks. But does that mean that I am now a speciesist? No, it just means that I'm honest about things that are scary. So the idea that we are trying to install fear really doesn't stand up too much. On to the next sentence. Seems to me that you suspect people of color will treat white people as badly as white people treated people of color in the past. Wow. Now there's so much to unpack here. The first thing is, I think this is an inherently dangerous way to go about looking at race relations. Because what Carlos here is doing is assuming that people of color are one hegemonic block and that white people are one hegemonic block. That white people behave in a white way, that white people live in a white way and that people of color live in a people of colored way. Now that's incredibly fervorian. That's exactly what the architects of apartheid thought in designing the system. They thought there was a fundamental difference based on immensely dodgy and debunked science from hundreds of years ago, that white people are somehow superior or that white people function in one way rather than the other different way of Asian people or people of color, whatever you want that term to mean. So it is, I think, inherently offensive to start treating people as merely parts of groups. It is the definition of fervurdianism. It is the definition of saying your identity, your way of thinking, your hopes, dreams, ambitions, your way of life isn't determined by the agency you hold, 
by your own faith, your own values, your own beliefs. No, no, no. This all in the worldview of the Ferfurgian school of thinking, critical race theorist way of thinking, you essentially argue that black people live in a black way and that white people live in a white way and that they cannot see or meet each other in common ground. And that's patently false. That is patently false. So if you're going to start grouping in accusations, people of color and white people as if they are one group or one entity, you are dehumanizing these individuals, which is incredibly dangerous. So that's the first problem with that statement. The second problem with that statement is it sort of implies that there's this generational sinfulness that flies across time and space. Because if you read into this comment, the idea that white people today share responsibility for the activities of white people 200 years ago, you're just totally dismantling the idea of actual accountability, actual justice. In that regard, social justice isn't about holding the individual accountable and ensuring redress in the here and now. It's about guilt by association across centuries. And critical race theorists, and Carlos himself refers to the slavery, um, the transatlantic slave trade that underlies the alleged systemic racism and whiteness to which critical race theory and critical race theorists are opposed. But that is a very narrow and a very ignorant perception of history. If you look at the last 10,000 years of human history and you base your entire worldview on 150 years where a slave trade was dominated by one race group and another race group received the, the brunt of oppression and you define the entirety of human consciousness and thinking around that, I think that's terribly, terribly naive. And also, it smacks of some very deliberate cherry picking. What happened during the Atlantic slave trade was awful. But you can't pretend that that was the first instance and the last instance of slavery. And therefore, because it was white versus black in that instance, white versus black is the parameter or the lens you look through at the world. We have to be honest, there was Persian slavery, there was Roman slavery, there was Jewish slavery, there was, you know, in, in, in prehistoric, um, uh, uh, well, not prehistoric, but pre-modern and definitely um, early uh, century Europe. Um, slavery existed in Africa between tribes. It is a part of the shamefulness of human history across the whole world that people have subjected and people have oppressed others. Sometimes it is based on race, but sometimes quite often it is based on ethnicity or tribe or language or sex or gender. To look at oppression as something clearly or exclusively informed by race, by whiteness or blackness is being dishonest about history. So number one, We've got this problem in this statement that people of color and white people are grouped together almost in Bantu stuns of the mind in a Fervurdian way of thinking this is how white people think, that is how black people think. 
I think that's disrespectful and actually quite racist because it denies the individual agency of people who belong to these groups. And it does so on the basis of race, I think quite coming quite close to the definition of racism. Secondly, we, we, you've got this problem of cross-generational guilt by melanin association, which is just not accurate, nor is it just. And fundamentally, it undermines justice to such a degree that the idea of the individual being wronged and another individual being held accountable for a specific injustice, that gets thrown out of the window by this worldview. The next sentence is, this is a fear-based projection. No, it's not. It is merely taking critical race theory seriously. When they say that whiteness and systemic white racism, because of the Atlantic slave trade, still dominates society today. Now, there's a problem in relying heavily on the Atlantic slave trade as the hook or the banner under which you march. Because the Atlantic slave trade was banned in the middle of the 19th century by white politicians in places like Britain and in the US. So if you are going to say that the Atlantic slave trade is the basis of your thinking, the basis of white supremacy, then you have to, in some way, throw out the end of the slave trade brought about by people like William Wilberforce and in America, Abraham Lincoln some years later. The problem with this view is, again, you take history and you cherry pick rather than looking at the reality that while slavery was an evil and while white European or American people, of course, benefited from cheap labor. It misses the very real reality that oftentimes the slaves transported across the sea were captured by people with the same skin color as their own, often in tribal and ethnic conflict. You also miss the historical fact that whiteness, or at least individuals carrying the weight of whiteness, led the charge to abolish the Atlantic slave trade and achieving probably the greatest political victory in the history of democracy. So is this a fear-based projection? No, it's not. It is merely looking at what the critical race theorists say, what they base their worldview on, and coming to a conclusion that they are wrong. You are mirroring others, and this is fear of revenge. Well, no. Because I don't fear revenge, because I don't buy into the idea that black people as a collective have a hive mind, cannot think for themselves, must think in a group that, you know, A, B or C will happen and they will act as some mindless entity. I think people are people. And I dream of a day when we can be treated by the, for the content of our character, weighed, measured for the content of what's inside rather than the color on the outside. So when we look at this sort of criticism, we have to be honest and take it on board and engage with it, but we shouldn't be fearful in calling it out often as lies or just plain nonsense or in the best sense, 
a misinterpretation of what we are saying. In this regard, I want to challenge everyone watching this video to call me out where I'm wrong. Call Fan out where we are wrong. Let's have this discussion. Let's engage. Because the moment we accept that we can engage, I'm afraid you are falling foul, or we will be falling foul of critical theory. Because at the heart of critical theory is the idea that we cannot relate to each other. We cannot understand each other. We have to adhere to standpoint theory, where knowledge is purely subjective, where there is no objective truth, where we can't understand, sympathize, or even empathize with others. This is dangerous. It is toxic. And it is scary. So if we are installing fear, it's not fear of other people. It is fear of an idea trying to tell us that other people are either victims or villains, either workers of evil or weak. I don't buy that. And I think the majority of people don't either. And if you think I'm misrepresenting critical race theory, go read the critical race theory texts. Go to the mapping, the margins. Go to the work of, you know, the critical theorists like Judith Butler and Ibram Kendi and D'Angelo. There's no secret in what they believe. And we can take them on and show them to be out of touch with reality and show them to be the real people who, by focusing on race rather than content of character, undermine the dream of a non-racialist world, as espoused by people like Martin Luther King. I hope this episode has been useful. It certainly has been useful for me to understand criticisms, but more importantly, to respond to them and to do so honestly. I hope we can all understand that if it's about social justice, with a capital S, capital J, we might not get very far. But if it is about actual justice, we can really start righting the wrongs of the past, fighting for freedom, because in the end, my freedom, your freedom, everyone's freedom, irrespective of the color of their skin or the color of the skin of their parents or grandparents or great, great grandparents. Well, your freedom is worth fighting for. See you next week.